Good Sunday morning and welcome to the latest edition of Sharing the Victory, a program sponsored by the WVU chapter of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And Kirby Myers, the campus director with the WVU FCA, with us on this Sunday morning. Good morning. Thanks Good morning, for coming Kyle. in. Good morning, Kyle. How you doing? Oh, we're doing well, and we're excited about the Mountaineers. Now, for people who don't know, is obviously the FCA works directly with Mountaineer coaches and players, and Kirby gets the opportunity to travel with the football team. So that was certainly fun, going to Kansas and clinching the bowl. What was that flight back? Was it... Pretty happy. Pretty happy. I've been on some flights after losses, and it's it's quiet. It's depressing, but uh, a win. Everybody's in a good mood, and and knowing that that wasn't our final game, knowing right. that there was a bowl game coming up, uh, I think guys were really positive. Well, that's the thing about it is that this team at one point was two games under five hundred. Yeah, and it took a four and two finish to the season, including two consecutive wins, Texas and Kansas to get that done, to get that Correct. accomplished. And I'm not sure people quite understand where the program is right now in terms of a lack of depth and a lack mm. of bodies and some uh, some vacant scholarships. So for this team, I think to get past all of that, all the injuries and all the players who weren't available and win these last two, I think it's uh, it's a pretty good statement. I agree. I, th- I think, you know, we were 2-4 and four and to end up 6-6, six and six, with with a lot of injuries um and i think in those um final six games we were the underdog in four of them so it's pretty good yeah very good okay well we're here to go to sunday school and we will in a moment but again we need to remind you we'd like to remind you that the fca is completely self-funded they are given access to the players and athletes on campus by the university but they're not supported by the university that's all done with the uh, with the fundraising efforts of Kirby and Teresa and the FCA board. So keep that in mind when you're considering who to donate to, who to give to during this holiday season. And every donation is welcome. If you can give five dollars, I mean, if something on this radio program has touched you throughout the months and throughout the years, or if you've heard the story of an athlete that has uh, inspired you, uh, five dollars, ten dollars. Of course, the bigger the better, but any gift is welcomed and certainly appreciated. I agree with that. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, WVUFCA.org. That's the website. And there's a mechanism to give right there on the website. Thank you, Kyle. Well, good morning to all of you. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And today, or uh, a few weeks ago, I preached a message at FCA that aired on this program on trials. And we looked at the life of Job in Job chapter 1, and we looked at the trials that the Lord brought into his life and how he responded to those trials in a way that brought glory and honor to God. And just a review from that message to lead us where we're going to today, uh, the first thing that we saw and observed in the life of Job was that we must have a proper view of birth. We come into the world with nothing. We do not own anything. That is why Job would say, naked I came from my mother's womb. The second thing that we saw and observed was that we must have a proper view of death. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing with us from this world. Everything will be left behind. And that is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19-20, in the Sermon on the Mount, "...do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal." 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. The third point that we looked at, and I want to expand on that one today, is that we must have a proper view of God's grace. And in Job chapter 1, in verse 21, Job says there a three-word sentence. He says, the Lord gave. And here we talked about the fact that Job understood the grace of God. He knew that he came into the world naked, that he had nothing, but he also knew that while he was on the earth, the Lord had chosen to bless him. It was the Lord that gave Job 7,000 sheep. It was the Lord that gave Job 3,000 camels. The Lord gave him 500 yoke of oxen, or 1,000 oxes. It was the Lord that gave Job 500 female donkeys. It was the Lord that gave Job a large number of servants. The Lord gave Job a wife. And the Lord gave Job and his wife 10 children, seven boys and three girls. And it was the Lord that gave him the title, greatest of all the men in the East. God did it all. All things came from him, and Job was simply a recipient of God's grace. Job was an Old Testament saint, as we know, a patriarch, probably living around the time of Abraham. It's hard to to always know as we read our Bibles. It's not necessarily in chronological order, and so, but that's where we place Job, and Job, again, was an Old Testament believer, but he understood a couple of truths that we find in the New Testament that we hear from the lips of Jesus, again in the Sermon on the Mount, and from Jesus' brother James. In Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Jesus says, "'Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds.'" And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And then James, James 1.17, James the half-brother of Jesus, says, In verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so, friends, as we've just come out of Thanksgiving, it's important that we stop here and are reminded of the fact that all that we have comes from God. We come into this world sinners. We come into this world with an evil and wicked nature. We are depraved. We are prone to sin against God. I like to say that before we know Christ, sinning is the best thing we do. We are professional sinners. We're really good at it. And because of this, and because we have sinned against a holy and righteous God, we deserve nothing but death and an eternity in hell. But God is gracious. He gives us many things for our enjoyment here on earth, and we must remember it is because of him. And so today I want to take a just a quick break, a one-week break from our study of the Gospel of John, and I'd like to talk to you about grace. 
last time we were together in our study of the Gospel of John, we we learned there in chapter one that Jesus was full of grace and truth, and that grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. I want to talk today about the meaning of God's grace, especially in how it relates to our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of everlasting life. I don't want to assume that, and I did this with our FCA huddle a couple Mondays ago, I don't want to assume that we all know the meaning of grace, and I don't want to make that assumption again this morning for all of you that are listening to this program and maybe are listening to our podcast. We use this word grace a lot in Christian circles, and we should because it is a biblical word. But I am not certain that we all understand what grace means. And so I would like to give a definition of grace. In fact, I'd like to give you three definitions because I think all three of them are really, really good. The first one, I guess maybe the simplest of the three, grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. And here we understand that grace cannot be earned. It is God's favor, God's blessing bestowed on sinful men and sinful women. It is not merited. If it were merited, if it were earned, it would not be grace. Romans 11.6, Paul deals with this a little bit, and he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So that's one definition, one that I like a lot, that I share with people. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. A second one would be grace means, this is what it means, I get what I do not deserve. I get that which I do not deserve. So we talk a lot about the different attributes of God, grace, love, mercy, justice, wrath, and often we, we talk about God being gracious, God being merciful. We, we praise God for his grace. We praise him and thank him for his mercy. What is the difference between grace and mercy? Well, grace is the positive. Grace is, as I said, I get that which I do not deserve. God gives me things I do not deserve, including salvation and the forgiveness of my sin. That is not something I deserved. I was a sinner deserving only death. Mercy is the negative, which would say, I do not get what I really deserve. And again, I believe as a pastor, as a Bible teacher, as a Christian, that the only thing we deserve is death and an eternity in hell, because we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all trespassed his holy law. So grace means I get those things. I get that which I do not deserve. And a third definition, if you like acrostics, if you like those kind of things, and and looking at a word and, and breaking down a word to understand what it means, I heard this one years ago. I put it third, but that doesn't mean it's not important or it's not a good definition. But a good definition of grace would also be, as an acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Salvation is free. We know that. 
when you read the Bible, you understand that, that salvation is not earned. You cannot earn salvation. There's no amount of works you could ever do to please a holy and perfect and righteous God. It is the gift of God. But God's grace is not cheap. When you study the Bible, you understand that it costs the life of his one and only Son. For us to be recipients of his grace, there was a great cost, and it cost the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible nearby, I would love for you to turn to Ephesians 2, and we'll look at verses 1 and 10. I think this is a passage that, better than any other passage, highlights the grace of God, especially as it relates to salvation and everlasting life. So Ephesians 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Paul is writing, and he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wow, what a fantastic passage of Scripture. It starts out with some really bad news. In verses 1 to 3, theologians call this the, the sinfulness of man, the depravity of man. It, it really reveals our condition outside of Christ before we know Christ. And let me just go over what those things are. First of all, Paul tells us that we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. Secondly, He says, we were walking according to the course of this world. I don't know if you've watched the news lately or if you've just observed what's going on in our culture, but to live according to the course of this world is to be opposed to the things of God. It's very clear. You don't want to be one who is walking and living according to the world, but that's what we were doing before we knew Jesus Christ. Thirdly, We were subject to Satan and his evil rule. Here we see Paul um, is referring to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. He is the ruler, the god of this age, small g, when you think of the word god there. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. He roars or he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Um, That's who Satan is. And We are subject to him and his evil rule before we know Christ. Fourthly, here we see that we were sons of disobedience. 
And that really goes along with what I said earlier, that before we know Christ, we are we are sinners. We are sinful. Sinning is the best thing we do. We are professional sinners. We are really good at sinning. I have three boys, and I did not have to teach any of them how to sin. You know, we had to teach them how to talk and how to walk, how to crawl, those things, how to ride a bike, uh, how to read, but you never have to teach anyone how to sin. It's part of who we are. It's part of our DNA. It's part of the fall because of Adam's sin. That sin has been transmitted and transferred to everyone who has ever been born, save Jesus Christ. We are sinners, and we are good at sinning against God. And then fifthly, when we look at this, we see that we were unable to change our dreadful condition. And that goes back to verse 1 when Paul says, and you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. I remember when I was out of college and I was working for Fellowship of Christian Athletes in Danville, Illinois. That was my first job. And I remember studying Ephesians, and I and I was really intrigued by this word that Paul uses here, the word dead, and I and I wanted to know more about it. I had not yet been to seminary, and I hadn't had any Greek or any Hebrew, and I was just trying to to know the scriptures. And so I did have a, a concordance, you know, that maybe my parents bought me at one point that had all the words in the Bible, um, Hebrew words from the Old Testament, Aramaic words from the Old Testament, and then the Greek uh, from the New Testament. And so you could look up those words and and find out what they really meant. And I remember really wanting to know, what does Paul mean when he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins? And so I remember looking that up and, and turning to that word, uh, the word dead, finding it in my concordance. Uh, the Greek word was there, it was the word nekros. And a lot of times when you look up a word in a dictionary, you're going to see, you know, hey, this is the definition of the word, but there will be other words there, uh, synonyms. But when I turned to this page in my concordance to look up the word dead, there was only one word there for necros, and it was dead. That was it. That is exactly what Paul means. He doesn't mean you were sick, you were in trouble, you were mostly dead. He says you were dead. And that is what dead means. Dead means dead. And that led me to to do a study and to teach a study called The Sinfulness of Man and the Sovereignty of God. Because we see here our dreadful condition. And apart from Christ, there is nothing we can do to change that condition. But you got to love the words in verse 4 where Paul says, but God. And I'm not going to do this this morning, but you could go through Scripture and look at all the times when you see these two words together, but God, and it is simply amazing to look at all the times. And and we see that the bad news, the state of man, and and, uh, what man was doing and how he was not pleasing God, but then God intervenes. God responds in a merciful, gracious, and loving way. And so here we read that because God was rich in mercy, I love that illustration. He he doesn't just have a little mercy, but he's rich in mercy. Uh, Because of the great love with which he loved us, because of his amazing and marvelous grace, we have been saved. 
we have been forgiven of our sins, all of them. The Bible says that he remembers our sin no more, that he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. Our sins are buried at the bottom of the ocean floor, and we have been given everlasting life. I love this passage because what we see here is some of the things that came out of the Reformation back in 1517 under the leadership of a monk named Martin Luther. We just recently, I mean, it's just barely been over 500 years ago that we uh, that the, the the Reformation took place. And in the Reformation, there came a lot of rediscoveries from the Bible, and uh, some of those are, are known as the solas, the five solas. And one of those is sola gratia, the fact that we are saved by grace alone, and that we are saved by faith alone, uh, sola fide, and that we are saved by Jesus Christ alone, solus Christus. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And Paul makes it very clear here that we are not saved by works, so that no one may boast. I often think about this. You know, there are so many people who are living their life in a way they are hopeful that uh, they will do enough good works to get them to heaven. And so, so many people live this way. They think, If I can just do more good than I do bad, God will be pleased with me and God will allow me into heaven. And so man and and woman, they strive to to do good, to be pleasing to God and, and hopeful that their good will outweigh their bad. And if you live with that kind of mentality, then you are living according to a salvation that is merited, that is earned, that is by works. And that would lead to boasting. If, if salvation was by works, by what we do, then we would get to heaven and, and all of us would be talking about what we did to get there. One person would say, well, I'm here because, you know, I volunteered with this organization for 40 years or I'm here because I was baptized or I was here because I went to church every Sunday. I went to mass. I went to Bible study. Uh, I went to prayer meeting. We would all be listing what we did to get to heaven. But the Bible is very clear that there will be no boasting in heaven. There will be boasting, but not any boasting in ourselves. The only boasting that we will have in eternity is boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the one who saved us from our sins, in the one who who went to the cross and bore our sins in his body that we might be reconciled to a holy God. Our boasting will be in Christ and Christ alone, who chose us before the foundation of the world. We see this earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, who loved us when we were his enemies. Think about that. God did not love us when we had it all together. God did not love us because we first loved him. No, he first loved us, and he loved us when we were his enemies. He loved us when we were helpless and hopeless, when we were running the other direction from him. We will boast in the Lord Jesus Christ because he saved us when we were dead in our sins. So God was gracious to Job. He didn't have to be, but he was. We understand and saw that Job was a sinner just like we are sinners who had trespassed God's law. But God was gracious to him and gave him many things. And 
and gave him the title of greatest of all the men in the East. And God has been gracious to each of us. I don't know who's listening this morning. I may not know who you are, but I I can bet that God has been gracious to you. God has been good to you. He has cared for you. He has given you many gifts. Every good and perfect gift, as we read earlier, comes from God. It comes from above. God is a loving Father who desires to give good gifts to his children. We did not deserve it. We can see this from the study of Ephesians 2. God is rich in mercy. He is abounding in loving kindness. He has much mercy to give. He has much love to give, and he has demonstrated that toward all of us. You know, again, as we're still in this Thanksgiving season, approaching Christmas now, but just stop for a moment, maybe as we come to the end of this message today, and think about how has God been gracious to you? What are you thankful for? Maybe you did this as you gather together for Thanksgiving, just thinking about what has God done for me? But I think it's really good to take some time and and write down all the blessings that God has given to you, to share those with other people, that we not forget the goodness of God and, and to really reflect on those things. We're talking about grace today, and I wanted just to conclude with the words of a great hymn. I'm not going to sing it. That would uh, make our listeners go to zero. But Grace Greater Than Our Sin was written by Julia Johnson in, in 1910. I hope you know this hymn because it's a really good one. And let me just read the words to that as we come to a close. Grace greater than our sin. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the lamb was spilled. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold. Threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold. Points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can we do to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, you that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? And then the chorus goes like this, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we could take a week to look at it today, to have a greater understanding of what it means that you are a God of grace, that you are gracious to your people. Lord, thank you for your unmerited favor. Thank you that, Lord, we get to enjoy God's riches at the expense of Christ. And Lord, we get those things that we don't really deserve. Help us to be a thankful people, not just one time a year on a holiday, but Lord, that we would be the most thankful of all people because Lord, you have saved us, you have forgiven us of our sin, and you have given us everlasting life. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Very good. WVUFCA Campus Director Kirby Myers with us on this Sunday morning and presenting a message that uh, that the athletes were uh, were privy to recently. 
And uh, we certainly appreciate that, and we appreciate the work that uh, Kirby and Teresa do with the FCA, with the players and the coaches on campus. And, uh, again, we encourage you, if you'd like to learn more about what they do and learn more about them, you can go to the website, wvufca.org, and uh, even contribute financially if uh, that's what is uh, what you're led to do. Well, this is an exciting weekend. We'll find out uh, what bowl West Virginia goes to later today. Sunday afternoon. Today, right? <laughs> today, exactly. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, so uh, there'll be a 13th game for the Mountaineer football team and a trip somewhere for a uh, college Let's go to Phoenix. Football. Come on, Arizona. <laughs> a few days in Arizona in uh, late December. That would be very nice for those who get to make that trip. All right, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. We'll be back next week. Another edition of Sharing the Victory, program sponsored by the WVU chapter of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes here on WAJO.